Hey everyone and welcome back to The Leadership Project with your host Mick Spears. We bring you thought-provoking guests and topics every week to challenge your thinking about leadership. Our aim is to help you become the leader that you wish you always had as we learn together and lead together. Hey everyone and welcome back to The Leadership Project. I'm greatly honoured today to be joined by a very interesting guest. Cynthia Corsetti is an executive coach with a difference and the title of her upcoming book is going to really drive this home for us. She's writing a book right now that's in pre-launch and by the time this episode goes to air, it'll be weeks away from hitting the bookstores and being able to be available for sale and it's called Dark Drivers. So Cynthia, as an executive coach, helps leaders and top performers to resolve things from their past that are preventing them from being successful in their present and in their future. So this is going to be a really interesting conversation. Most executive coaches work on the present and the future. Not everyone delves into the past on some of these dark drivers that Cynthia talks about. So I'm excited about today's conversation. I have to admit, a little nervous because it might end up being in a therapy session just for me that I'm going to then publish for everyone. But as I'm an open book, so I'm looking forward to today's discussion and I look forward to sharing it with you all. So Cynthia, without any further ado, I would love to know what about your background and what drove you to be focused on this very specific area? Well, my background is actually what drove me to be focused on this very specific area. I kind of had a unique growing up experience where I was taught that my job was to be pretty and to get married. And I did that at 19 years old. And I, you know, thought I had all my ducks in a row and realized how much that that mental processing was stuck in my brain. And there's a lot more to it than just that. But but it impacted every decision I made. It impacted when I got married. It impacted who I married. It impacted not going to college right away. It impacted everything. And so my career kind of was on the like a really late start, you know, so I figured all this stuff out. So that that's kind of when I finally did get into my executive roles and my leadership roles. It was like a really tumultuous journey to get there. And when I started working with executives, I had like, I knew I could understand when I saw their behaviors and their actions. I'm going like, that's like not you. That's not authentically who you are. That's like the five-year-old or the six-year-old who's still dealing with the processes that we're dealing with. And I learned it through my own experience. Yeah, that's really interesting, Cynthia. I'd love to get right into that. And the question that popped into my mind as you were talking is when you were say you were taught that you should grow up and marry and all of these things, are you talking societal expectation or are you talking about a very explicit instruction, let's say? So I don't know if you should give talk to all this in my book, but um, so what happened for one of my first earliest memories as a child with, you know, how like parents read to their children, we read them stories, we read them books. Well, the very first time my father read me a story, it was probably maybe four and he, he used to sit in this big reclining chair, smoking his pipe. And he called me over and said, come here, Cindy, I want to read something to you. And so I got all excited. Dad is going to read me a story. And I sat on his lap and he reached down beside his chair and he pulled out a Playboy magazine. And he started thumbing through the pages of the Playboy magazine with me. And his heart believed that what he was doing at that time was preparing his little girl for how to be successful in life. And like looking back, like I was just sucking it all in. Oh, so when you are fed that like very early, that that's what you're supposed to be. That's who you're supposed to be. That's your place in the world. It's really hard to break out of that. And you don't realize that small, there are multiple things, but like that was one of the small things. So I talk a lot about, you know, past traumas and past experiences and past memories. And I use the word trauma, not in a psychological word, like it doesn't have to be like abuse or, you know, you saw somebody murdered to be a trauma. It's something that impacts you and your life moving forward, even if you're completely unaware that it's impacting you. 
And that scenario is one of many in my early childhood and upbringing that created this path that I was on that was extremely self-destructive for a really long time. Mm. So I definitely want to unpack that word trauma a little bit later. What I'm kind of hearing there is it feels like it's an element of social conditioning, but then immediately and directly reinforced by your father at that moment. And as you said, a path. So it sounds like a pattern then emerging of reinforcing behaviors that, hey, this is what girls do, Cynthia. This is what they do. This is what women do. And if you want to be successful, the interesting thing that I also picked up there, it feels like you've resolved that your father was doing that with good intentions. Was that always the case? Did it always, or was there a moment in time where you realized, well, hang on a second, no, that was not appropriate? Well, there was definitely a time when I realized it was not appropriate, but it was much later in life. Like when I was very young, I thought that was normal, right? I didn't know any better. And what I've learned, and because I didn't just like come up with this theory and say, well, this is what it must have been. Like I researched it like relentlessly and studied how memories are formed and how we process things. So for example, if you are a three-year-old and you walk into your parents' room at 5 a.m. and your parents are like, please go back to sleep, just go back to sleep. All they mean is let me have five more minutes of rest because I have a toddler and I want to sleep. But to that toddler, They could very easily process that. They assign meaning to that as, oh, my parents don't want me or I'm not lovable or I'm not good enough. And it gets in their subconscious and then they they go about their life, but it's still in their subconscious. So then in second grade, when a kid doesn't want to play with them or in, you know, when they don't make the cheerleading squad, the subconscious is just validating that memory. It's just, and it grows. It's like this seed that's growing within you. So we so unconsciously look for validation of things that we believe, and we're not even aware we're doing it. So it's like, yep, that's more data that's sealing that little place in my subconscious that I'm not love, I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough, or I'm not pretty enough, or strong enough, or whatever we do, they're there. So the thing I'm picking up there, Cynthia, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this is essentially an element of subconscious confirmation bias that something in your past could even be a suppressed memory that is not let's say at the front of your mind but it's something that's happened in your past that started to form a view and then you start seeing the things in everyday life that confirm that view and before you know it it just gets compounded it just gets compounded is that what i'm hearing Yes. And it's not just the event. It's the meaning we assign to an event because there's so much research out there that says that our memory isn't even reliable. So that's another reason why I can't can't look at my parents and say, like, you guys were, you know, complete jerks. You screwed up my life and you did this because I only know what I remember as a four-year-old or a five-year-old. I know that I experienced that and assigned a meaning to that in my perspective. If you have siblings, and you ask your siblings about growing up, it's like you grew up on different planets. It's like, seriously? Like, is that what you remember? Like, I don't remember that. And like totally different experiences and siblings, because we might all be going through very similar things, yet we assign different meanings to them. So our memory is not really reliable. So I can remember that day like it was yesterday, but I have no valid proof that it ever happened. I mean, I just, the human memory is infallible. Oh, yeah. I mean, fallible. Yeah, it's fallible. It it is so fallible. And I'm absolutely certain of this. And, you know, we see court cases all the time that show that memory is fallible, but it's very real for that person, right? And this is what you're saying. And it's then the meaning that's being assigned. It's not even the event itself per se. It's the meaning that being assigned to that, which is really interesting. A thought popped into my mind when you were saying that, Cynthia, is that these things could be positive too. They could be negative reinforcement or they could be positive reinforcement. And the image that popped into my mind was, I'm going to use girls' sport if you don't mind on this one, but this could have applied to a young boy, etc. It's not really gender specific, but let's say that you're a young child whose parents tell you every day, oh, you're so good at sports. You're really good at any ball sport. Oh, wow, look at my daughter. She can catch a ball and she's only two and all this kind of stuff turns into a confirmation bias, a knock-on effect that, oh, this person grows up to become a world-class footballer, let's say, or or even if not a world-class, but learns to love sport. 
versus a young daughter who gets told, oh, no, girls don't play sport. Oh, be careful of the ball, darling. Oh, oh, oh. Like the parental reaction, which I'll unpack a little bit more in a moment, then sets the course of, is someone going to grow up to love sport or are they going to grow up to be the one that shies away from the ball when the ball gets kicked towards them? How does that sit with you? Yeah, it's absolutely accurate. We do that. And those are confirmation bias, you're right. We hear that and we teach our kids that and we repeat it. Like, you know, my parents repeated what they learned. They repeated what they believed. And then I kind of, when my children were younger, tried like, you know, kind of had some of the same screw ups because I got married so young and I had kids so young. So it was, you know, it wasn't until you start to see the impact. Now mine, some of those were negative and you're right. They can be positive. And I still call them dark drivers, even when they have a positive effect. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is because they are buried so deep within our subconscious that they are, you know, kind of hidden from the light. So they're dark drivers. Another one is I see a lot of really high level executives who will tell me, and I probably had in my career, at least 30 of them say to me, the reason I am so successful is because I am terrified to fail. Because when I grew up, you know, I was told I will be a success. I will be that. So that, although it's positive, is still in driving them and they're getting great results because of it. It's not, they're not totally fulfilled in what they're doing and they're still struggling with the same crap I was struggling with, only in a different way. Yeah, that's really interesting. I I like that you put out that it could be a dark driver still. And I was thinking about, once again, that confirmation bias and that societal expectation now. Let's say, let's go with the sports analogy one more time. And it could turn into, I'm a failure if I don't become an elite sportsman. And it started out as, oh, isn't it great that you're good at sports? But all of a sudden it became this snowballing effect that I'm going to be a failure if I don't become a professional sports person and or let's say successful in any field that we go in. And we're not talking here, I don't believe since it could get as bad as this, but we're not talking about, you know, the Williams sisters with a dominant father who are almost kind of. I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but that stereotypical sports parent that then tries to get their children to live out their dream. We're not talking about that extreme. It could be just the almost seemingly innocent reinforcing behavior that drives the person to think they're a failure even when they're not. And what can happen is even if this child, the parents are very innocently just trying to be encouraging, you're good at sports, and this child believes this, and they keep looking for it, and then they get in high school and they're doing pretty well and they make the team. But when they go to college, maybe they're no longer the big fish in a small pond. Now this small fish in this very large pond, and they're not as good. And that reality hits them. It's like, crap, maybe I'm not as good as I thought. And then that's a whole other thing they've got to deal with. I think my daughter is kind of an example in a way of academics. She was brilliantly smart and she was reading, you know, really, really early. And all we told her is how smart she is her entire life. And she was a valedictorian in her high school class. And then when she went to college, she was in like an honors program and stuff. She's gone, mom, she goes, I think I peaked in high school. <laughs> because There's some really smart people here. And, and that that's something, I mean, she's still smart, but that realization that like the world's bigger. So maybe you are a great athlete, maybe you are super academic, but maybe you've got to get this reality check of what the rest of the world, what else is out there. Mm. I'm also wondering at this point, picking on this point about being smart, whether it can then accidentally reinforce behaviors that are not the ones that we want. All right. So not just the expectation now. So, you know, you've read my book. So, you know, one of the things that I talk about is one of the leaders, one of the mistakes that many leaders make is always trying to be the smartest person in the room. So I think about this behavior that you're talking about. If you're a child that has always been told how smart you are, you get in the workplace and every day you try to prove how smart you are. And we know that great leaders actually have the ability to learn to be the last to speak and to sit back and let other people step forward with their ideas and flourish so that you don't become that point of dependency, right? Or, and all of, for many reasons, you don't want to always be the smartest person in the room. How does that sit with you? That it could actually, not just the, okay, the pressure of, oh, I've got to be the smartest person in the room. Now the behavior presents itself as always trying to prove myself to be the smartest person in the room with unintended negative consequences. Well, interestingly enough, I have one of the examples. My book covers stories of real leaders going through their dark drivers. And one of them is actually a genius, is very much like that. But a similar one 
was a gentleman who's also a PhD, very, very brilliant, very successful in his career, but no one wanted to work with him. Like they called me and because they're going like, we need him because he's really smart and he's got great talent. Figure out how we can keep him because everyone hates working with him. And as we delved into it, we discovered that what people were saying is he's obnoxious. He always has to have the last word. He doesn't listen to other people. He's just got to speak up, whatever. Even an email, there could be this email chain. He'd have to have the last one. It was like this diatribe of a long email, right? So as we uncovered and peeled back that onion, realized he was the youngest of seven siblings. And in order to be heard in his entire growing up, he had to be obnoxious. He had to kind of just be in their face. And he kind of learned that. And as as he made that connection between how he's behaving in a meeting and how he felt when he was a child feeling left out or ignored, he got to the point where he goes, Honestly, Cynthia, he goes, I will leave a meeting. I'll excuse myself. I'll walk it in the hall, out in the hall and I'll say, okay, Sam, that's the seven-year-old. Let's go back in as the adult. And he could actually make that conscious decision. And that's what this book aims to do is to help you make that connection so that you are able to just navigate it. They're not going to go anywhere. Like those dark drivers are not just going to pick up and leave. They're part of who you are. What I'm loving there is the awareness. So many things there, Cynthia. The first one that people could see that person's gift, but they also didn't want to work with them, right? So the fact that they had that awareness to be able to go, hey, I wonder what we can do about this. And then for the individual to have the awareness that the dark driver exists doesn't, like you said, doesn't mean it goes away, but that awareness then is like a deep level of emotional intelligence right now. Emotional intelligence is not about not being emotional. It's about noticing and naming your emotions so that you can then, let's say, manage your emotions in the optimal way. It's not even to suppress the emotion. It's to notice and name the emotion and then to work out how am I going to use that emotion to optimal effect and make sure it doesn't, let's say, do damage or have some kind of negative consequence and if possible, even turn it into a motivation. But all starting with awareness. How does that sit with you? Yeah, it's exactly what happens. It's that aware. And then they'll start to see the connections between personal and professional. So these same behaviors that I'm doing at work, I'm doing them a little bit differently at home, but I'm still doing them. And they still stem back to the same same things. Yeah, really interesting. There's so many things that are coming into my mind during this episode, Cynthia. This is really wonderful. I want to test something with you now about reflective learning. I was touching on this before and I said I'd come back to it. So one of the things about these reinforcing behaviors is they don't need to be explicit, right? So I'll tell a story and then I want to hear your views on this and how it starts forming these dark drivers and these behaviors. So I'm sure this is a story that will resonate with many and it's about a child's first swimming lesson, right? So when your child or someone, it could be your niece, it could be your grandchild or whatever the case may be, When they go to that first swimming lesson, there's a huge moment in their life at that time. As they start going into the water, they take sideward glances at the person that took them to the swimming lesson, the person that they trust, and they're looking for verbal and nonverbal communication of, is this safe? Is this good? Should I be having fun? Should I be scared? And that moment, it's not even the things that are said. It can be the look on the parent's face or the grandparent's face. Everything about it then starts setting in the thought of, is this person going to love the water or not love the water? So one of the things I want to ask here about the social conditioning of the people around you, that it's not always going to be just the explicit, but it can be everything that's going on in that moment. Tell me more about your thoughts on this. I agree wholeheartedly on that whole concept because the brain is taking in information on so many different levels that we're not even aware that what they say, like we use like an ounce of our brain's capacity is what we're actually aware of and using. So everything that's happening around us, the sights, the sounds, the smells, they're all processing and they're processing to whatever meaning we're assigning to them at that time unconsciously. And you're exactly right. So if this child looks around, She sees somebody freaking out over there. She sees the mother in the background, like over anxious. And I'm told that I get so much anxiety as a parent when my kids are little. And now I'm even told that I make my dog anxious because that's like, see, I said that and here she comes, my anxious dog. But because that's what 
We do. It's just our demeanor. And we do send those messages to other people, you know, unintentionally. So it doesn't have to be this big, explicit, sit on my lap and let me read you this pornography. It can be that simple. Let's go into the water and the mother yelling, the water's too cold. Make sure she has on too much sunblock, all those things. Yeah, right. Yeah, very good. Now I want to convert that into a leadership lesson because that happens in the workplace too, right? So we spoke before about, you know, great leaders learn to be the last to speak and they let their team flourish and all this kind of stuff. But people in the workplace do the same thing. If they're doing a presentation to the group or whatever, they'll be doing those little sideways glances towards the boss to see whether the boss is engaged, whether the boss is happy, whether the boss is upset, etc., etc. Now, I hate to say it to everyone listening to this, leadership is a responsibility and that moment is a moment of responsibility. And you can choose to have reinforcing behaviors right there or you can have the moment that you're going to impact what's going to come out of that person's mouth next, whether you like it or not. How does that sit with you? So let me back up because I, I got a little confused when you said the is a responsibility. Now, were you talking about the leader sitting in the room or the person presenting? The leader's responsibility that even the way that they're sitting on their chair can impact the way the person's confidence, their ability to continue the presentation, where they're going to take the presentation. Those little sideways glances, they can have a huge impact. They absolutely can. And we perceive what we like. If you consider the fact that everyone in that room has their own dark drivers, they have their own things that they brought into that. So if I'm already presenting and I'm already feeling a little bit insecure, you might do something completely innocently. I'm going to perceive it differently. And that's why that responsibility is so critical. And that's where empathy, I say this book kind of puts empathy on steroids. Because now if I understand that the person here presenting to me isn't just this, you know, this person from the marketing department who's doing their first presentation, it's this person from the marketing department who's standing around me with about a hundred little beach balls just hidden, just right underneath the water, all around them waiting to come up and smack them in the face if they get triggered by something. And I don't want to be that trigger. So it does help you see people differently. That's also helping me circle back to something else that you said really interestingly earlier was that it's about the impact to them, not the impact to you. So, and the meaning that they're attaching to that event and what's going on. It's not about you, it's about the impact to them and that it's very individual to them. And like you just said, it could be an innocent thing, but they're going to interpret it in a completely different way to the way that you intended or the way other people in the room might be interpreting that event. So I want to unpack that a little bit more. You said before, it's about impact to them and the individual and the impact for them might be very different to the impact to the next person. Tell me more about that individuality. Well, an example I can give you is when I was, my job at the time was the president of a chamber of commerce and it was a small office, maybe four employees. And I had been at a breakfast meeting outside of the office. So I came in a little bit late. When I walked in, the staff, we had new offices. So the staff had stacked all these brochures and stuff up on the countertops and they were super excited about it. I walked in and I just I came in from breakfast meeting. I walked in and I said, hey guys, this is a little cluttered. You guys want to like clean this up? And I just went back in my office. I came back out like 10 minutes later and one of the women was like in tears, crying, sobbing. I'm like, what is wrong with you? Like what happened? And she was like, you didn't respect what we did. You didn't like what we did. You know, you think we're terrible. You think we're like, and honestly, I never even thought about it. It was just like a stupid statement that came out of my mouth with no thought bad on my part. Yes. But that perception, how she perceived and how the other people in the office perceived it, they didn't care. This one was devastated by it. So we have that responsibility as leaders to be aware of our actions, to be aware that our words matter. Position power is so much more a thing than we give it credit for. And most leaders think, oh, I have an open door policy. People can come to me and talk to me anytime. They don't realize that most people won't. Mm. The interesting one there, and, and we're in in this area of trauma again, what I'm interested about here, almost worried about it, is the example that you just gave was something that became out in the open, it became explicit, and you could address it. What I'm worried about is how many people in the workplace are walking around now with those traumatic events, and that is an example of trauma for that individual, but it's unresolved. And when I say unresolved, not even in the open. 
they're carrying this big weight around their neck or whatever the case may be and they're around the office going, the boss hates me, the boss hates me, the boss hates me, the boss didn't like what I did today, etc, etc. But they're not talking about it and if they're not talking about it, it can't be resolved. Well, I think that one of the things that people do is ruminate and worry about what that boss is thinking. When I try to convince the executives that I work with and the vice presidents on their way to the C-suite, the other person's usually not thinking about it anymore. Like you are spending all this effort ruminating about what they think and ruminating about it. And that's where I try to say, like, what proof do you have? And, you know, I try to teach people and clients to start like, let's deal with what we know and what we can control and stop ruminating about that stuff. Because you're right. Like this woman that started to cry, if she didn't start to cry, I never would have known. And she would have been dealing with that on her own. But I, as a leader, I have no control over that. So I think that it's important as leaders to be as open as you can, be as authentic as you can. But as people, I think it's our responsibility too to not think everybody's thinking about us all the time. They're not obsessing about what we just did. We might've done something really stupid in a meeting and the boss might've yelled at us. And chances are when the boss was done yelling at us and went down the hall, they were over it. Us on the other hand, we're not over it. We're going to obsess about it for days. Yeah, I think that's true in almost any relationship. It can be in your romantic relationship as well. Some seemingly innocent, and we shouldn't, you know, shouldn't play too much on that. But let's say seemingly innocent comment from one partner in the relationship. The other person's thinking about it for the next three days. And the other person's thinking about what they're going to have for breakfast. They've moved on, but you haven't. Absolutely. It's in every situation. It's just, you know, kids on the soccer field, they miss their shot. And, you know, they're obsessed about it for the next three weeks when all their teammates went home and completely probably forgot about it. Had ice cream and yeah, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I'm with their life. They're going to watch TV. <laughs> yeah. Good example. So one thing I want to test here is about the role of assumptions, right? So the lady that you're talking about that breaks down in tears in the workplace here she made an assumption about what you were thinking. What role does assumptions play in all of this? I think it plays a huge role. I, I deal frequently with people that are upset or offended that there's a department meeting or a meeting that first they complain when there's too many meetings, but when there's a meeting that they're not invited to, they make a lot of assumptions about that. Why wasn't I invited? Why don't they want my value? Why don't they care about what I have to say? Or they're talking about me and I'm going to get fired. Like it just goes down this vortex because they're making assumptions and chances are it just had nothing to do with you and they didn't want to waste your time. But we as humans tend to like catastrophize. Hmm. Yeah. Catastrophize is a good word. And I think that's exactly what we do. What does it mean to you? Catastrophize. Tell me more about that. The one thing that I wish I knew way earlier in my career was to stop thinking about worrying about what everyone else thinks about you because they're probably not thinking about you. And I think that is the, the biggest, because earlier in my career, I would obsess about everything and ruminate about everything and be paranoid about everything. And it caused stress and anxiety and couldn't sleep at night. I would leave jobs because I was afraid that if I didn't leave, I would get fired. And these all cycle back to that imposter syndrome, to that you're not good enough. It's all these dark drivers are in there. And so we look for problems before they're there. And we try to protect ourselves so much from letting that happen. And we're not even aware of it. Like I had no idea that I was leaving jobs because I was afraid of getting fired. I was able to rationalize in my brain. It wasn't until I connected all the dots of all my dark drivers and said, oh my gosh, that's exactly what I was doing. And that's when it made sense. And so that when I say catastrophizing, that's what I mean. We're going to get fired. And I see clients do it all the time. The board's going to be so upset. This and, you know, if I said this, I had this one slide wrong on my slide deck and, you know, the board's going to interview someone else. Like people do that. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I love the way that you were able to process that and connect the dots. And we do see it in the workplace a lot. We'll, we'll see someone that, and it can almost come across as self-centered by the way, but it's about how they're processing the events. People that there's an email that gets sent around and they all always assume that the email is about them. Or in a meeting, if someone brings up, hey team, we really need to get better at topic X, they'll be thinking the whole time, oh, was that me? Did I, did I start this? It's that kind of internalization all the time of it's about me when it's not always about you. And departments. I had a situation once in coaching where an EVP, an executive vice president, sent an email to three different department heads. 
And it was one email to three people and it was like two sentences long. And it was something like something to the effect of, I don't think the messaging was right on that. Maybe we need to make a change. And it was like that simple, that quick. She was busy. She threw something out there. These three different department heads got it. The one department head took it pretty much the way she meant it. The other department head who was already a little insecure about her job thought that that was like this passive aggressive dig at her. So she completely changed the direction of our entire team and got them moving in a different direction. And the third one just pretty much ignored the message entirely because he thought she didn't understand what she does anyway. So it was this really bizarre way that three people, three leaders took two sentences from the same person in one email. And they all went in different directions, which is a whole nother communication problem that we had to deal with. The meaning that we assign to things, that the one that took it and changed her team's direction, I mean, it was like two weeks down the road where she had them completely shifting focus on what they were working on. And that came from her dark drivers, her inferiority complex, her paranoia about what this boss thought about her. And the boss simply was busy. There was nothing preconceived, nothing passive aggressive. She was just busy. So that's like what we do. It's not, not all of us, but I mean, it happens. No, I think it's natural that people are doing this. And I think if everyone listening to this right now stops and reflects, I'm sure you can think of examples where you have done it, where your team have done it, where people around you have done it. So I want to unpack this a little bit further. So two sentences, three people, three people assigned different meanings to the same two sentences. What I'd love to know, Cynthia, is what practical tips can you give people in, I'm going to say, both of those positions, right? So if I'm the leader that wrote those two sentences, what do I do to, let's say, arrest this pattern of people going off and taking three different meanings from the two sentences? And then from the recipient, how do I stop myself from being the runaway train that goes, oh my God, the boss hates me? Those two sentences, they were about me. The boss hates me. Well, that situation is one of the reasons that I created my own care to lead system when I go into organizations. The C in care is clarity. So I teach the leaders to communicate with clarity. First of all, be clear about what the heck you want for yourself first before you even try to communicate it to someone else. So that leader, if she's trying to work with clarity, she would ask herself, all right, what is the real outcome I want when I send this email? That's her responsibility. She's got to be clear with herself and then clear in how she communicates it. And then when people get an email, if they're not clear about it, they need to be able to ask for more clarity, ask for more questions. Don't assume, don't write your own meaning because you're going to be wrong. So why would you put yourself through that? Ask for clarity. And that clarity starts within. It absolutely starts within. Yeah, love it. I think that's the key, right? So if you're starting to put too much meaning into anything, ask for clarity and communicate with clarity. That's a really great tip. Tell me more about care to lead. Right? So you've given us one here. You've teased us with C is clarity. Tell us more about care to lead. So Care to Lead, I developed it as a system because I saw patterns in leaders, right? And there's just clarity is critical in every organization. Didn't matter what kind of organization, it could be a group of restaurants to a tech company, clarity is missing all across. And they'll start with their mission, their vision, they're having trouble, communications just not going through, clarity. Authenticity is that trust and that how do we show up. Then the R is responsibility. I am a believer that finger pointing in organizations has to stop. You know, well, marketing didn't do it. IT didn't get their part done. So we couldn't do it. And product sells what marketing sells, what product can't create. And there's like all these finger pointing. And like, what can you do? Because you're giving up your power when you point fingers. You're completely a victim. You're a victim. Well, marketing didn't do it. So you're going to suck at your job for the next five years because marketing doesn't do it. Like, what can you do? How do you become a better person, a better leader in your own respect? So there's responsibility and then engagement. And it's not just about how do you keep your team engaged? How do you remain engaged with the job that you're doing? I love it. First of all, very easy to remember acronym CARE. And I'm going to put the challenge out to the audience right now. So if you're listening to this, have a think about it in your own leadership. Do I communicate with clarity? Do I show up as my authentic self? Do I take my responsibility as a leader seriously? And do I engage my team? And if you can just think about care today, use that as your little self-reflection moment, you're going to grow as a leader. I really love it, Cynthia. I want to come back now to something else you said earlier, which is repeated patterns. So you were mentioning about 
parents and parents that grow up to be similar to their parents who are similar to their parents, etc., etc. I want to know more about this kind of how we get in this situation where I'm going to say sometimes healthy, sometimes very unhealthy patterns of behavior become learned behavior that repeat from generation to generation. I think a lot of those are often in the more unhealthy things like scarcity mindset, fear of money, fears. We pass fears along, shame, you know, parents feel shame. Those are the things we tend to, I think, I'm not a psychologist. So, but what my experience has been research and studying I've done is we tend to pass along the things that were more are negative because we're trying to protect ourselves and our children. So it's a matter of, you know, another one of the things I talk about in my book was that like my mom was very afraid that my dad would leave us. So she kept telling me he's going to leave us. He's going to leave us for some young, pretty chick in the magazine, right? And so he's always going to leave us. She had this fear and she would tell me that to protect me, like have to be good because if your dad leaves us, we're in trouble. So the conditioning she was inadvertently teaching me came from her own fears. Like she was terrified that that was going to happen to her. She didn't deliberately put that fear into me, but I got it. I heard it. So relationships, I'm bailing before someone bails on me. I'm always going to have a plan B because I don't trust this guy. Somebody's going to be out for something else. And so I always was insecure in relationships because of that. It wasn't intentional. And then I'm sure I pass along some crap to my own kids, but we keep so many therapists in business as parents. You know, we're good in that way. We give dollars to therapists because we make mistakes as parents. It's really interesting what you say because we are somewhat hardwired to avoid loss. So fear is a huge driver and we know that. Like So that's been proven many times that we're more scared of loss than we are of the possibility of gain, right? And then what I'm hearing from you is that conditioning, which could be implicit or explicit from the behaviors of our parents before us, relating to driving to what becomes our values. So you brought up even things like money. My relationship with money is a reflection of what I saw as I grew up. And it becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy based on what I've seen as I grow up. And unless I do something to intentionally to break the chain, my kind of values towards money, relationships, love, all of these things. Even down to things like public displays of affection. If my parents showed public displays of affection, I'm highly likely to continue that pattern. If my parents say, no, 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 you never do that, there's a good chance that I will never do it, yeah? So yeah, there's the fear of loss for sure. And then there's that continuance of values. How does that sit with you? Absolutely. Even even things as simple as when kids start driving, you know, how we as parents respond to them when they're going out on the road for the first time. We're going to set them up for this terrifying white knuckle experience that's going to be hard for them to let go of, or we're going to have confidence in them and, you know. All right. So this has been really interesting, Cynthia. And I think we've really unpacked a lot of interesting things about how these dark drivers then perpetuate and shape who we become. What I'm interested now is what your sessions look like. So you help top performers and leaders and executives to address their dark drivers. What does that even look like? How do you start? Well, I do end up doing that, but that's not like what my specialty is or anything like that. It just started happening naturally. So for example, the guy that I told you about, the youngest of seven siblings, we use neurolinguistic programming. So I want to be really, really clear here in the difference between therapy and coaching, because you hit it right in the beginning. You said coaching hits where we are now and how we move forward. So I will help a client like, and it's basically once that trust is developed, I partner with my clients. So there's an enormous amount of trust. If you don't trust someone, you can't do this. So if you have a really strong trust level and it'll just be, let's back up. Like when's the first time you remember that? Let's go back further. When do you remember it before that? And we can go all the way back until the very first time they remember it. And it's like, you can see it click. Oh my gosh, that's when it started. I remember, you know, I, I remember that moment. So I kind of just walk them back through that. Now, if you walk somebody back through that in something really traumatic, like they were sexually abused or something like that comes up, like that needs healed, that needs healing, that needs a therapist. That is out of my realm of expertise. But if it comes up that, yeah, I'm an obnoxious jerk now because I was the youngest of seven kids and I learned that I had to be an obnoxious jerk in order to survive. That I can help you with as an executive coach. And it's like, all right, how is this playing out in your day today? How do we live with this and move forward? 
Yeah, that's a good example. And, and to unpack that a little bit more. So, yeah, coaching works on what we call a heightening mindset and to take someone from where they are to into the art of the possible. And therapy is a resolving mindset. So resolving things from your past that might be holding you back today. Really great advice there from Cynthia that if you're in that situation where it's something deep and traumatic, that is where a psychiatrist and a trained psychologist and a therapist is your go-to. What Cynthia is talking about, there's nothing to stop anyone trained or untrained to still think about, oh yeah, why do I do that? And I like your process of working backwards to find was there some kind of trigger event or multiple trigger events that led you to the things that you do today? So the looking backwards and resolving things from your past. The thing that pops into my mind right now, Cynthia, is the role then of limiting beliefs. So there's a saying that we say a lot, which is limiting beliefs kill more dreams than failure ever did, right? And if we don't address those limiting beliefs, it will hold us back. So how much of this resolving mindset for you is about eliminating limiting beliefs that show up today? Well, I think I'm a believer that these limiting beliefs all come from something, right? And like I said, they're not going to go away. They're these dark drivers. So the way I describe this to my clients as I'm working with them is I say, I want you to pretend for a moment, imagine that your life is a bus and you step onto the bus and you look back in the bus and you see all the seats filled with people. And every single one of those people is a version of you. And one version is that little seven-year-old who didn't make this cheerleading squad. And the other version is the one that got the scholarship, you know, all expenses paid to university. And the other one's the one who landed this job. At any given time, when you're struggling with limiting beliefs, you have the power to decide who's driving that bus. So at the time that limiting belief is there, it's this person who's afraid. And if that person's driving, it's going to go right by the opportunity because they're afraid to stop. But if you can say, ah, yeah, I get that. Thank you. Go have a seat on the back of the bus right now because I need the stronger version of me to drive because they're all with you all the time. Oh, I love this. I love the metaphor and I love that thought. And and think about all the things that we've discussed today, Cynthia, the ones would be if you grow up thinking that you can't catch a ball or you're to be afraid of balls, you'll never learn to catch a ball. But what is the different version of you that learned how to catch a ball and and became a sports person, et cetera, et cetera? Let them drive the bus for a while. That's really interesting. I'm going to bring it to the workplace. If you think that you're terrible at presenting, That's just going to perpetuate unless you let someone else drive the bus. How does that sit with you, right? So that person that's scared of public speaking, if they're letting that thought stick there, how do they get someone else driving the bus for a while so that they step forward out of their limiting belief and out of their comfort zone and just give it a red hot go? Well, I like to try to help people figure out when did you succeed at something like this? Just like we can go back and say, when's the first time you had that negative experience? Let's talk about the first time you really did okay speaking publicly. Remember your church group? Remember the Girl Scout leader thing that you did? You did okay at that. Let's let her drive or let him drive. Yeah, I love it. All right. Very good. I want to come back to one that I skipped over because I didn't want to lose this train was then about the repeated patterns. So we were speaking about the repeated patterns parent to parent. I want to bring that to the workplace right now. This is one that I have to admit, I stick up my own hand and find myself having done the very thing that I'm about to tell you about multiple times. We've all had horrible bosses at different times and we've all attached meaning and had impact and trauma associated with horrible boss. But what we see is repeated patterns. So we see someone that had that horrible boss that was telling people what to do and, you know, ultra alpha style and very directorial, et cetera, et cetera. And then all of a sudden, five years from now, they become the boss and they start doing the same things, even though they didn't like it themselves when their previous boss did it. They've somehow conditioned themselves that that's what bosses do. How do we break those patterns, Cynthia? With a good coach. You're right. We can repeat those patterns. The other side of that that people do is they might leave that boss, but the next job they go to, they find themselves in a situation with the same type of boss. There's a reason we're allowing ourselves to be in a toxic work environment. There's a reason we're we're drawn to certain kinds of things and we remain there. And again, that goes back to ourselves and our responsibility. You know, that might be how the first job we got when we were 15 or 16 years old as a, you know, a waiter or a lifeguard or whatever we were doing and have the boss yelling at us. And we learned that that's the boss's role. Some people take that and they decide, I never want to be a boss. 
because I don't want to be that person. They can't make that mental, like I don't have to be that person, but they think that's all it is. So that comes with just good training, leadership training and development. But again, there's that other person who's going to seek that out by their own subconscious. They're going to be looking for that toxicity. And that's when people change jobs over and over and they find the same patterns. It's like this honeymoon phase for a while and then reality sits in and they find they're in the exact same miserable situation six months or a year into their new job as they were in their old job. Is it the job or is it you? Mm, Yeah, this is really cool. So the word that's popping into my mind is the word intentionality, but it's also the word putting in the work, right? So if you find yourself in these patterns, put in the work, it will find out what is it. It's hard to see in ourselves. It's really hard to see self-destructive patterns. And it's so much easier just to say, I have an older brother who was a pilot. And during his years of coming up through the ranks of pilot school, I think he got fired from like 3,000 jobs. (laughs) I am exaggerating, but he kept getting fired. And every single time he got fired, he would say, the guy was an a-hole. And like, after like, like six years of this, I looked at him, I said, like, do you really think that like, they're all could maybe be you a little bit? And he's like, oh, I never thought of that. Maybe I'm probably partly the blame. And that's, it's so hard for us to see our own flaws. And that's why like as a coach, and and I'm sure you've experienced this too. It's really hard to say to someone, you know, you should hire an executive coach because they're like, I don't need, especially executives. There's a lot of ego involved. I don't need a coach. Why do I need a coach? It's remedial. Like we all have these things driving us and we're completely unaware of them. And even if we're super, super successful, imagine how much more successful we could be if we didn't have these things that we're unaware of driving us. Yeah. The thing I always think about there, Cynthia, is that Tiger Woods, even at the height of his prowess, had a coach, right? So any executive coach, yeah, multiple, right? So any executive out there saying, oh, why do I need a coach? You will all benefit from having a coach. And then the second thing, if I think about what you were sharing about your brother is about getting off autopilot, right? So stop letting life happen to you and start taking back, I'm going to use your bus metaphor, get hold of that steering wheel, start driving your own life and do the work to go, hang on a second, why does this pattern keep on repeating itself and do the work and get a coach to help you to do that work? I think that's a powerful takeaway. It's a journey. It's a lot of work. I mean, it's a lot of work to do that, but you come out the other end so much more. So you can be successful and you can be in a really good job that you love. And there can still be this feeling that like, I'm just not feeling fulfilled. There's just something missing from my life. And I don't know what it is. I feel empty and it can very well just be a dark driver. It could be something that you're completely unaware of. It's in your subconscious. And once you uncover it, you'll find out like how much happier you can be, how much more fulfilled you can be. Yeah. And I think it's staying curious in that process, right? So not just thinking back to what happened, but what was it about it, the meaning that you attached? What was it about that job that I loved? What was it about that job that I didn't love? And see if there's uh, patterns that start emerging, repeated patterns that might tell you something about yourself. Really interesting. Yeah. This one little piece of my business, I have this It started because I would find executives who would be transitioning into different jobs and always looking for something better. And they would get the next job and be miserable six months later. So I created another, this little career transition program, I call it RE3, and it's Reflect, Rebuild, Rebrand. And one of the things I have clients do is they go through this process. I make them go back and list every job they had since they were 16 years old. And we look for patterns in those jobs. Tell me, like, you were a waitress, you were a this, you were that, you did this, you did that. What do they all have in common? Because whoever you were then and whoever you were when you chose this career now, the career that you're working in today, doesn't exist anymore because four years have gone by or 10 years have gone by. The person you are today is completely different person than the was then, though even the one that took this job. So we need to figure out who you used to be, what you liked, what appealed to you, and what stuck through you as a pattern that still exists today and still makes you kind of happy. And you kind of think, yeah, I kind of, all my jobs were about service or all of my jobs were in nonprofit or all of my jobs are about helping people. All of my jobs are about the analytical stuff. So, you know, you kept that part of you, but all these other parts of you just are kind of like, they don't really exist and you're not going to be happy in a job that you're taking because of them. Make sense? Yeah, it does. And it's that reflection once again. So that's the call to action here today. I want you all to stop and reflect and think about what Cynthia is talking about here and notice and name these things. Notice and name them just like emotions. Notice and name these things from your past so that you can process them 
And when you process them, you can make sense of them. And once you can make sense of them, you can then take the steering wheel of your bus and you can be the one that's driving it and going forward. How does that sit with you, Cynthia? You're 100% on target. That's what it's about. Just reflect, self-reflection, self-awareness, and understanding that everyone is in the same boat. Every single one of us has our own busload of people. So when you're looking as a leader and you're, you've got an employee in front of you who's struggling or who's passive aggressive or who's causing problems, whatever they're doing, have the empathy to understand that they might have a subconsciously be just like on their own pattern of self-destruction. So just don't try to be their psychiatrist, but have empathy to understand them. Oh, that's really good advice as well, Cynthia. There's been so many great takeaways today. We've got our CARE acronym. We've got our three R's. We've got you know people really thinking and reflecting on things in their past, positive and negative, and the things that drive us to be who we are today. And then the empathy that everyone else is going through that as well. The thought of trauma and, and trauma is very individual about the meaning that someone is attaching to different events. And it may be very different to the meaning that you're applying to the very same event and that's where we can drive us through i'll come back to the care acronym again so that clarity that authenticity that responsibility and that ability to engage people in your workplace so many great takeaways today cynthia i've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation i'm going to take us now to our rapid round the same questions that we ask all of our guests so i'm curious to know cynthia what's the one thing that you know now that you wish you knew when you were 20 I think I already hinted to that earlier, but it is to stop ruminating about what everyone else is thinking about you because they're probably not thinking about you. That was a big one for me. I got to say, when you said it, I had this instant self-reflection going, oh yeah, do I do that? I think I do. Right. So for 36 hours, you're thinking about some event that everyone else has long forgotten, right? Really good. Okay. What's your favorite book? It's a Rick Hansen book and it's called Buddha's Brain. It's the Practical Neuroscience of Happiness, Love, and Wisdom. And it's just a great book. Rick Hansen is a psychologist who I've read a lot of his stuff. And it was actually, as I was understanding Dark Drivers, like a lot of the psychology stuff that I read about came from him. Nice. I've not heard of that one. I'm going to look into it myself. What's your favorite quote? Change the way you look at things and the things you look at change. It's a Wayne Dyer quote. Oh, I love it. That's brilliant. And that really reflects on what we've been saying on today as well. That's really great. And finally, Cynthia, I'm sure that many people in the audience have been enthralled by what you've shared today. How do people find you and connect with you to know more about the book, about you, about your services? How do they find you? It's simple. It's Cynthia at CynthiaCorsetti.com. I'm on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is my happy place. I love LinkedIn. So I'm really active over there. I have Facebook and Instagram. It's all just under Cynthia Corsetti. I don't have any fancy names. My website, Cynthia Corsetti. You'll be able to order the book from Amazon or from my website and hopefully from every bookstore in the world. But right now I'm just like Amazon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cynthia. Absolutely brilliant. And I'm looking forward to getting a copy when you're done for sure. I feel richer from having this conversation already. And I know I'll be even wiser once I've read your book and put some of these processes in action as well. Thank you so much for your time today. Very enriching experience for me. And I know the audience would have gotten great value from this as well. Thank you so much. It's been an honor and a pleasure. And thank you to all of your audience who's listening. Thank you for listening to The Leadership Project at mixbeers.com. A huge call out to Faris Sadek for his video editing of all of our video content and to all of the team at TLP. Joanne Goes On, Gerald Calabo and my amazing wife, Say Spears. I could not do this show without you. Don't forget to subscribe to The Leadership Project YouTube channel where we bring you interesting videos each and every week. And you can follow us on social, particularly on LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram. Now, in the meantime, please do take care, look out for each other and join us on this journey as we learn together and lead together.